1: Join me
0: as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your
1: podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Due to the graphic nature of this family's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder sexual assault, and violence that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Christmas Eve, 1868, in Clinton, Texas. Buck Taylor, a racist, murdering outlaw, confronted Bill Sutton, the lawman who killed many of his fellow gang members. Sutton watched as Buck stomped up to him, his face red, he whispered in his enemy's ear, leave town by sundown. The lawman's reply, why wait till then? Enraged at Sutton's challenge, Buck drew his gun, preparing to murder his enemy. He failed to notice as Sutton's fellow regulator, one Doc White, jumped out from his hiding spot in the back of the saloon, pulling his own gun and firing at Buck. As Sutton watched Buck fall limp on the saloon floor, a new outlaw caught his eye in the doorway, drawing his own weapon. Sutton didn't know it yet, but this was Dick Chisholm, Buck's fellow cattle thief. Before Chisholm got his gun up, Sutton leapt into action. Chisholm flew back through the doors of the saloon, falling dead into the street. Inside, Sutton and Doc White stood over the body of Buck Taylor, just to make sure he was good and dead. Doc's bullet did its job. The outlaw's glassy, lifeless eyes stared up at the ceiling. Finally, they were making progress. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. In the legal definition, a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore passionate crimes. How does a marriage progress from husband and wife to killer and victim or killer and co-conspirator? If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? The Taylor Gang of DeWitt County, Texas, terrorized the state for nearly a decade before law enforcement finally intervened. The gang's cruelty drove lawmen to respond with a passion that bred even more violence. Beginning in 1868, 22-year-old Deputy Sheriff Bill Sutton and his fellow regulators systematically killed every Taylor gang member they could find. Before long, the gang retaliated and a cycle of killing began. It would become the bloodiest feud in Texas history. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise. Head to ParkCast.com merch for more information. At the beginning of 1869, the regulator law enforcement posse boasted several notable leaders. There was a young Bill Sutton who killed Charlie Taylor and his cousin Buck. There was also Charles Bell, the former spy turned detective who longed for an assignment in the nation's capital. In addition, there was Jim Cox, the rancher determined to protect his land. Joe Tumlinson, the Sage Texas Ranger, who in fighting the Taylors, was choosing to war with his own in-laws. And finally, there was Jack Helm, the former Confederate who now seemed to be taking his bitterness over the fall of the South out on the Taylor Gang. In June 1869, Helm tracked down the posse of Jim Bell, who worked for the Taylors, stealing scores of cattle and murdering multiple Union soldiers and black citizens. Jim managed to escape Helm's attack, but his gang was captured. Helm reported that they were all killed in an escape attempt which was becoming an excuse that the Taylor sympathetic public no longer bought into. Creed Taylor, the Taylor family patriarch, continued to play stories in the press that Helm was executing prisoners. A political divide was growing within the state. On one side, there was the emancipated black population and the occupying union troops, including the lawmen, and on the other, the white settlers who resented them. This divide so inflamed the tempers of the region that bloodshed was inevitable. Politics in the state were about more than taxes and infrastructure. They were about deeply held moral convictions that affected people on a psychological level. Before I continue discussing psychology, please note that I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist but I have done a lot of research for the show. Professor of psychology and social behavior, Peter Ditto, wrote that genuine differences in moral sensibilities are dangerous when they become infused with politics. In 1869, politics and moral sensibilities were completely intertwined, as one party believed in slavery and one did not. Ditto also wrote that in any era, This dynamic leads to biased interpretation of events. The white settlers of Texas chose to interpret the actions of lawmen such as Helm and Sutton as murder because they hated and distrusted any representatives of the Union government. Finally, Ditto wrote that politically segregated and sensational media can contribute to this divide. As Creed Taylor continued to publish his tirades and rebel-biased newspapers, this also became true for the people of Texas in 1869. The powder keg exploded as the Taylor gang mourned the loss of Buck Taylor, and the public became enraged at Helms' continued violent tactics. Later that summer in 1869, two members of the Taylor gang, known as the Peace Brothers, hatched a plan to get back at the regulators. They used a sympathetic local to lure DeWitt County Sheriff George Jacobs, Sutton Superior, to a remote ranch. The local claimed that the Taylors recently stole some of his cattle, and so Sheriff Jacobs came to investigate. Little did he know, the Peace Brothers were waiting in the woods next to the ranch. They emerged, pulling their guns and shooting the sheriff to death. Jacobs was a venerated lawman who had protected the county for years. By killing him, the brothers showed that the Taylor gang recognized no authority but their own. The law enforcement community immediately cried out for justice. Helm began roaming the countryside in search of the Peace Brothers. Meanwhile, they escaped to the ranch of another sympathetic local, one John Choate he resolved to protect the men from Helm's wrath, going about fortifying the ranch. He also reached out to his neighbors for help defending the brothers, but in doing this, he made a fatal error. One of his neighbors was esteemed former Texas Ranger, Joe Tumlinson, and a member of the Taylor extended family. Choate incorrectly assumed that Joe was aligned with the outlaws. Joe Tumlinson was not a young man. His hair was gray, his face creased, but he had lived a life he was proud of, though sometimes it was a life that didn't let him sleep too well at night. Dressed in a black shirt and tan vest, with matching jeans and boots, he walked outside to greet the morning. Joe leaned on his porch and watched as his neighbor, John Choate, rode up to the house what did this old fool want? He carefully shifted his weight, so his hand dangled subtly over his six-gun on his hip. After all, the Taylor Gang had put a price on Joe's head, and he didn't put it past Choate to try and collect. Choate approached with a friendly enough demeanor. He asked about Joe's wife, about his cattle, but he was clearly excited about something. Joe told him to spit it out. Nervous, Choate revealed that he was harboring the fugitives, the Peace Brothers, and that he was gathering a posse to defend against Helm and the regulators. He wanted Joe to join. Joe hardly believed his luck. Choate and his son Crockett didn't have half a brain between them. He replied that he would not join this fool's errand. That the brothers would get what was coming to them. Choate stammered and spit surprised that this staunch Texan sided with Northern invaders. He told Joe that he was risking his life, that the authorities would punish him. Joe allowed himself a smile and said that he would accept any punishment the authorities deemed appropriate. However, internally, he suspected that they weren't referring to the same authority. By the time word got to Helm, Choate Ranch was reinforced with 40 men, dozens of firearms, and hundreds of rounds of ammunition. Helm and fellow regulator Charles Bell decided to combine their posses along with Joe Tumlinson. Records indicate they had between 40 to 75 men. Dozens of horses descended upon the ranch, forming a complete circle around the house. It was a large building, but it was hard to believe there were 40 men inside. If they squinted, they could see only a handful through the ranch windows. In fact, they stared too long, as shots suddenly rang out from the sides of the house. The outlaws cut peepholes into the walls. The regulators were horrified as one of their own, a man by the name of Kirkendall, took a bullet to the head falling off his horse, dead. Helm raged. He commanded all of his men off their horses and up to the house. They unloaded their guns into the building, but it was impossible to see if they were hitting anyone. Finally, several of the regulators reached the walls, though they couldn't get the door open. Bell found one of the peepholes and fired his entire gun into it. Another lawman found a window and shattered it with bullets. Suddenly all fell quiet. There was no more shooting from inside. Abruptly, the front door was kicked open. John Choate emerged, hands in the air. He cried, don't shoot, don't shoot. Where's Jack Helm? I surrender. Helm glared at Choate. He was still on his horse, having commanded from the rear of the battle. Stepping down, he walked deliberately across the prairie toward the surrendering old man. Choate relaxed, putting his hands out to be tied, but instead of pulling out his lasso, Helm pulled out his gun. Choate's eyes went wide with shock as he saw the barrel of Helm's gun rise to meet him. Like so many a Taylor Gang member before him, Choate fell victim to Helm's habit of being judge, jury, and executioner. Helm blew the smoke from his gun barrel. Over at the house, Charles Bell raised an eyebrow but didn't say anything. Instead, he led a party into the now open ranch house. Inside, he found not 40 men, but less than half a dozen, all dead or injured. Chote's son Crockett was among the dead. The family, was wiped out. Regulator Intel said that practically the whole Taylor gang would be here. Little did they know, Creed Taylor heard they were coming and sent the Peace Brothers, as well as his sons Hayes and Doughboy, south to Mexico. He left the Choats, who had rallied to defend his cause, out to dry. By August 1869, All the regulators accomplished since the killing of Buck Taylor was to turn the people of Texas against them. Yes, they killed many gang members, but not enough with the last name Taylor, until Hayes, Doughboy, and maybe even Creed were dead. All of this would be for nothing. The Taylor gang would continue to terrorize the state. With that in mind, Bell had a plan. Next up, the regulators make a desperate move to try and end the Taylor family for good.
0: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
1: Now back to the story. In August 1869, 49-year-old Creed Taylor sat in his office sipping a whiskey. He was pleased with himself, despite the law's best efforts. They had yet to put an end to his cattle rustling operation. And they had yet to even catch either of his sons, Hayes and Doughboy. His leathery hands stroked his scraggly beard, scratched his bald head. He heard the sounds of his younger children playing elsewhere in the house, of the womenfolk talking in the kitchen. But as he worked, suddenly he noticed that all became quiet. The door was closed so he couldn't see into the hallway. He called out to his wife, Nancy, but there was no response. Slowly, he walked toward the door. He stopped himself. Better grab a gun. He began to move toward a chest sitting against the wall. But then, a group of regulators burst into the office, their pistols drawn. Creed just stared them down and cried out, what in the hell? Then Captain Charles Bell emerged from the crowd, holding his gun to Creed's face. Nice home you got here, Mr. Taylor. Think the boys will come around anytime soon? Creed just glared. This offense would not go unpunished. If the lawmen thought they could trap his sons here, they were sorely mistaken. He had sent them out of the country for precisely this reason. But he was underestimating his son's penchant for stupid decision-making. And Bell knew they wouldn't be able to resist a threat against their father and a shot at revenge against the regulators. He was more right than he knew. Behavioral investigator Vanessa Van Edwards found that brain activity actually increases when experiencing revenge-related emotions. We've already discussed how revenge is also inherently selfish. It allows one to reclaim a sense of power or status. The Regulator's trap was irresistible to men like Hayes and Doughboy Taylor. As with any major event in the Sutton-Taylor feud, What happened next is subject to conflicting and fragmented reports. Historian James Smallwood provided the most complete version of the account. The regulators had to wait but a day before Doughboy came riding up the trail, calling for his father. Immediately, regulators sprang from the surrounding trees and bushes, guns raised. Never the smartest of the tailors, Doughboy didn't give up, but instead, pulled his own weapon. The regulators opened fire and Doughboy took a bullet in the shoulder, falling from his horse. He was better at running than fighting and before they could stop him, he climbed over a nearby fence and disappeared into the foliage. There was no time to follow him, however, as Hayes and a few fellow gang members heard the gunshots. They arrived on the scene the regulators were thrilled at the sight of him. This was the brother who murdered multiple Union soldiers and freedmen. He killed Major Thompson those many months ago, and he stole more cattle and horses than could be imagined. He was, if nothing else, a loyal brother. Fearing for Doughboy's safety, he charged the regulators at full speed. They opened fire. Hayes' shooting arm was blown apart and his chest erupted with buckshot. Somehow, he continued to live. He used his good arm to turn his horse around, riding toward an escape route. Bell wouldn't have it. He took off after Hayes on his own, running after the horse. Obviously, he could never hope to catch it, so he did the only thing that was left to him, grabbing a rifle he planted his feet and studied his aim. He followed the departing Hayes with the gun sight. The Taylor boy was already yards away, but then he took his shot. In the distance, the back of Hayes's head exploded with blood and bits of skull. Finally, he fell off the horse. Hayes' Taylor was dead. On top of that, The regulators could now charge Creed with harboring fugitives on his property and arrest him. It was a huge victory, though a short-lived one. On September 18, 1869, a few weeks after his arrest, Creed posted bail. He was free again, but it cost him $10,000, which amounts to hundreds of thousands of dollars today. Though he lost a son, money, and more. He was winning on the ideological front. In February 1870, the state legislature finally drafted an acceptable constitution and elected a new governor. Governor Edmund J. Davis was a pro-union politician, which was surprising given Texas's rebel leanings. There were some whispers that the election was rigged. Regardless, if this new government was going to hold, Davis, needed to win over the people. His next move was a controversial one, a decision that seemed to play into the hands of the Taylor gang. In order to appease the gang's many supporters, Davis disbanded the regulators. However, this ended up being a largely symbolic move, as he then created a special police force that employed many of the same lawmen, such as Jack Helm and Bill Sutton. This began a cycle of unsuccessful policy decisions in which Davis attempted to please both sides of the political divide, and in doing so, pleased neither. Even so, many in the pro-union camp saw this as a win for the southern anti-unioners. They had gone from being ruled by union generals who gave no concessions to being ruled by an easily manipulated politician. Sensing the shift in the wind, Bell decided it was time to hang up his Texas spurs. Some accounts claim that he left after being turned down for a position in the new police force. Some say he ended up floating dead in the Rio Grande. The truth was that he again put his spy skills to use and quickly and quietly slipped out of the state. He took up residence in D.C. Or he fulfilled his aspirations of working as a detective in the capital before dying of an illness at the age of 36. Helm, for his part, somehow managed to stay on with the new regime. Not only that, he filled the vacant DeWitt County Sheriff position. This showed how Helm, a simple Texas sheriff, was one of the most polarizing figures in the country. One side of the political divide saw him as a hero, and continued to hire him, while the other side saw him as a mass murderer and wanted him dead. Sutton likely resented that Helm continued to be put in play as his presence further inflamed the feud. Taylor gang members were more likely to fight back than allow themselves to be arrested quietly, fearing that Helm would just execute them. Little did Sutton know, he was about to develop a similar reputation. Using his new position, Helm secured an arrest warrant for Henry and William Kelly in the summer of 1870. The entire Kelly family were infamous outlaws associated with the Taylor Gang. Henry, in particular, was known for raping young black women. Helm assigned Sutton to make the arrest, perhaps hoping that the brothers would be incensed at the presence of a famous Taylor killer. It's unclear what Sutton's outlook was as he traveled with fellow police to arrest the two brothers. He was with Doc White, the man who helped him kill Buck Taylor, as well as two other men. With the new regime, and with Helm not directly participating, he may have legitimately hoped to take the prisoners alive. Then again, he knew what they were guilty of, and he didn't hesitate when it came to killing Charlie or Buck Taylor. No one can say for sure what happened, but before either brother was brought into custody, they were shot and killed. Sutton and his men claimed that they had tried to escape during the arrest. William's wife seethed with rage. She and her mother-in-law found the bodies lying in the road. Rather than accept that her husband's actions led the family here, she swore to get even with the lawman who killed him. The feud continued to flare. August and September 1870 saw an intense series of courtroom proceedings in which the lawmen were put on trial for the murder of the Kelly brothers. Governor Davis continued to try and seem impartial, and so he didn't offer public support for his law enforcement officers. The ideologically driven psychology of the times led to gridlock. Pro-Taylor jurors completely bought the story of the Kelly women, even though it was filled with logical inconsistencies. For example, they claimed to be able to see the murder from Mother Kelly's house when it was too distant for that to be possible. Sheriff Jack Helm refused to even reprimand his men. This only increased the tension as the Taylor supporters feared that once again, there was no consequences for murderous law enforcement. With this environment, no verdict was reached. Sutton and his men went free, but in an attempt to appease the pro-Taylor camp, Governor Davis made a decision. Jack Helm was to be removed as head of the police force, but the Taylors didn't just want him gone, they wanted him dead. For now, Helm returned to his life as a civilian, working to improve farm equipment. Though he was likely extremely disappointed at this turn of events, there was some good news early the following year. In April 1871, Doughboy Taylor was killed. However, this killing came not at the hands of Sutton or other lawmen, but by his own stupidity. By this point in time, Doughboy returned to Texas and was attempting to live on the straight and narrow. But this proved impossible for one such as he. According to historian James Smallwood, when Doughboy was passed over for a job opportunity, he tracked down and attempted to murder the man who accepted the position. The man wrestled Doughboy's gun from him and shot him three times. Doughboy died in the street screaming. With all of the major Taylor lieutenants dead, the former regulators such as Sutton, Helm, Tumlinson, and Cox had some cause for celebration. Little did they know, the worst was yet to come. After another year of violence, in which new Taylor gang lieutenants competed for Creed's favor, In October 1872, a small gang of anti-Taylor locals laid in wait outside the home of Pitkin Taylor, Creed's brother. Though he was a historic criminal and scoundrel, Pitkin was now in his 70s and posed little threat. Nevertheless, he was lured from his house into a cornfield and shot to death. Though none of the chief lawmen were responsible, Sutton, Helm, Tomlinson, or Cox, this murder plagued them in the months to come. At Pitkin Taylor's funeral, the family gathered to mourn the loss of yet another beloved relative. But Pitkin had a son, Jim Taylor, who swore to the family then and there that he would get revenge. He turned to his mother saying, I will wash my hands in Bill Sutton's blood. Jim Taylor was younger than his slain cousins were, and though he ran with the gang for years, he didn't have an especially murderous reputation. This lack of outlaw experience led Jim to ally himself with perhaps the greatest cutthroat of all, John Wesley Hardin. Hardin's name is familiar to many Wild West aficionados. He is said to have killed dozens of men during his lifetime, with his first kill taking place before he was 16. Even before then, he was a violent young schoolboy, stabbing a classmate during a schoolyard fight. For most Taylor gang members, their murderous tendencies were motivated by greed, toxic family dynamics, and their own racial hatred. These are inexcusable, but nevertheless, human motivations. Hardin was also motivated by all of those same factors, but that didn't explain why he began killing at a young age, or why his body count was so high. He had killed around 20 men by this point in his life, if his autobiography is to be believed. With the hindsight afforded by modern psychology, we might label Hardin as having severe antisocial personality disorder. Criminology professor Scott A. Bonn wrote that the key traits of such disorders are a disregard for laws, disregard for the rights of others, lack of remorse, and a tendency to display violent or aggressive behavior. Clearly, just about everyone in the Taylor Gang fits that description, but Hardin appears to have exhibited these traits more strongly. Bond also distinguished that someone with more severe antisocial personality disorder is better at manipulation and actually fits in, hiding in plain sight. Hardin had a wife, owned a law practice at one point, and was now becoming the second in command of a large criminal organization. The evidence seems to suggest that his penchant for murder, combined with his ability to manipulate, made him truly disturbed. Jim Taylor was out of his depth in joining up with such a psychologically dangerous person, but his hatred for the regulators outweighed such concerns. On May 15th, 1873, Joe Tumlinson and Jim Cox were traveling with a posse on their latest investigation. Suddenly, Cox and one other man were shot off their horses. It was an ambush. Tumlinson and the others saw no choice but to flee. Cox gripped his stomach in pain as he watched his friends abandon him. He turned to see none other than Jim Taylor and John Wesley Harden riding upon their horses, rifles still smoking. Getting off his horse, Jim walked up to the dying lawman. Cox thought back to the early days when it was him and Belle and all the others and no one could stop them. He never expected it to end like this. Go to hell, he spat. Jim pulled out his knife and cut Cox's throat open from ear to ear. The first of the old regulators was dead, and he was just getting started. Next up, the bodies continue to pile up, and Jim and Hardin go after Jack Helm. Now back to the story. After finally electing a government and drafting a constitution, The Plains Justice of the Regulators' posse was no longer needed. Governor Davis disbanded the group in 1870, but unofficially the feud lived on, carried by Jim Taylor, younger cousin of the slain Hayes, Doughboy, and Buck Taylor. After his dismissal, former Regulator Jack Helm returned to civilian life, inventing devices to improve farming techniques. On May 17, 1873, he was at a blacksmith shop in Quero, Texas, where he sensed that something was wrong. He turned around to find that two men had entered the shop. Both had their guns trained on him. Apparently, the first man tried to fire, but his gun jammed. Seizing the moment, Helm rushed the first man, Jim Taylor, almost knocking him to the ground but the second man, Hardin, hit him in the shoulder with a shotgun blast. Jim walked up to him casually, revolver trained on the infamous regulator. He asked with a southern drawl, do you even know who I am? Helm just glared at him with his black, mean eyes. Jim's temper flared as he considered how many friends and family Helm took from him. Professor of Criminology and Criminal Justice Scott H. Decker wrote that violent crime is either instrumental or expressive. Either it serves a material purpose, or it sends a message. Expressive crime, driven by love, hate, or resentment, often features a level of carnage above and beyond what an outside observer might be able to understand. Such was the case with Jim Taylor's killing of Jack Helm. Jim's mind was racing with thoughts of revenge. He wanted the world to know that he was returning every ounce of violence that the lawman inflicted on his family. And he wanted men like Bill Sutton to know he was coming for them. As Hardin kept any onlookers at bay with his shotgun... Jack unloaded the remaining five bullets in his revolver into Jack Helm's head. All that was left of the lawman's face was a gaping, bloody hole. Jim Taylor was an instant hero to many of the white settlers of Texas who saw Helm as an oppressive instrument of the law. As for Sutton, he didn't want to end up like Cox and Helm. He brought a posse of half a dozen men with him wherever he traveled for the rest of 1873. When the Taylors instead turned their attentions to killing Tumlinson, they were again met with difficulties. He was barricaded in at his ranch, protected by 50 men. By August 1873, the back-and-forth fighting reached a fever pitch. If Jim, Taylor, and Hardin brought their 75 or so men against Tumlinson's 50, there would be civil war levels of bloodshed. The new DeWitt County deputy sheriff sat the two parties down and forced them to sign a peace treaty. Everyone doubted that the document held any weight. Sutton refused to take part. However, for whatever reason, Tumlinson agreed to sign. Jim Taylor and Wesley Harden Signed as well. Many were outraged at the treaty. Those who saw the Taylor Gang as murderers and criminals felt it legitimized their operations. Sutton knew that it was only a matter of time before they went back to their old ways, stealing cattle and murdering anyone they wanted. And he was right. Though it was technically the lawmen who first breached the terms of the treaty, On New Year's Eve, 1873, Wiley Pridgen, known Taylor Gang murderer and thief, was cornered by eight lawmen outside of a general store. Among their number was the young James Brown, who years before lost his father at the hands of this killer. With a decade of revenge fantasies fueling him, Brown shot Wiley Pridgen dead, reigniting the feud. The Taylor family saw this killing of one of their own at the hands of lawmen as a sign that the treaty had been broken. They demanded retribution. In March, 1874, six years after he killed Charlie Taylor, Sutton decided to take a break from the fighting to try and make some money for his family. His wife, Laura, was now pregnant and he wanted to be able to provide for the baby. Arriving at the docks in Indianola on the Gulf Coast, he planned to take a steamboat to New Orleans. After that, he would take part in a cattle drive to Kansas. But Jim Taylor had other plans. According to historian James Smallwood, Bolivar Pridgen, the family lawyer, learned of Sutton's plans through a banker and gave Jim the lawman's itinerary. Sutton sat in the dining room of a coastal restaurant, enjoying his wife's company before he departed for New Orleans. His friend, Gabe Slaughter, was with them. With good company, food, and a cool breeze blowing in off the ocean, it was a lovely day. He beamed with pride whenever he looked at his pregnant wife. Their relationship remained strong since they first met as children, and now, their legacy lived on in an air. The meal finished and the trio reluctantly made their way to the ticket office to book passage for Sutton and Slaughter. Sutton and Laura held hands as they patiently waited in line. But then, that all too familiar sound. Laura flinched as she was splattered with blood. She watched in slow motion as next to her Her husband fell forward, the back of his head exploding. She screamed and with no concern for her own safety, threw herself upon him, wailing with grief. Behind her, Jim Taylor and his cousin Bill smiled. Jim's gun was smoking. He finally exacted revenge on the greatest of the lawmen the oath he swore at his father's funeral was fulfilled. Gabe Slaughter attempted to fight back, going for his pistol, but Jim's cousin was faster and ended the life of Sutton's friend. Thankfully, Laura was spared. Little did Jim know, he also just sealed his own fate. Though the Taylor gang seemed to be winning the feud on the physical front, they were losing it on the political front. In January 1874, something astonishing happened at the state capitol. The white supremacist, pro-Confederate settlers, wrested control of their state back from the pro union government when Richard Koch unseated Edmund J. Davis and the gubernatorial election. Davis, the appeaser, the one who fired Helm and generally failed to support the lawmen was dragged out of his office. This development at first seemed like a positive for the Taylor gang, who were seen as torchbearers for the Confederate cause. In actuality, it meant that they were officially obsolete. During the occupation by the Union, the white supremacists needed the Taylors to stir the pot and incite public sentiment against the Northerners, But now that the Southerners had control of the government, they could implement racist legislation and undo the work of emancipation without the need for outright violence. Segregation laws were put into place. Interracial marriage was made illegal. A poll tax required citizens to pay to vote, which many Black Texans could not afford. Black people were also prohibited from participating in primaries, thus keeping them out of office with these now legal racist sanctions the new government needed to secure themselves with a sense of respectability this meant corralling the wild tailors who were still stealing cattle and causing gunfights and so lawmen throughout the state were instructed to put the taylor gang under arrest 22 members of the gang were jailed by june 1874. that same month Joe Tumlinson and a mob of former regulators pulled three Taylor gang members out of jail and lynched them. This included Scrap Taylor, a young, well-liked member of the family. This could be seen as a direct response to Sutton's murder. Creed Taylor was outraged, but the governor did nothing to punish the lynch mob. In fact, he was sending more lawmen into the field to capture Jim Taylor and Wesley Harden. Tumlinson had done what he could to avenge his friends. Now, 63 years old, his health was failing and he didn't have the ability to go after the remaining outlaws. He passed away peacefully a few months after the lynch mob, the only chief member of the regulators to not die violently. Hardin saw the writing on the wall and escaped to Florida in September of 1874. Jim Taylor continued to champion the Taylor cause, and together with his uncle Creed, he kept a certain amount of public sentiment on their side. But the age of cowboys was coming to an end. By November 1875, he was trapped in the town of Clinton, where his brother Buck was killed by Sutton just a few years earlier. Though he had a large posse camped outside of town by the river, the lawmen, led by Deputy Dick Hudson, managed to circumvent Jim's men and occupy Clinton. When Jim and his men tried to escape, they found that the locals locked their horses in the stables. A shootout was unavoidable, and when the smoke cleared, Jim Taylor was finally dead. Despite these victories, there were some members of the Taylor gang who never saw justice. Most obviously, Creed Taylor, the patriarch of the entire organization, was still alive. He managed to keep his hands clean enough to where the law never again tried to arrest him. After his first wife's death, he remarried, leaving even more children to replace the ones who died in the feud. He was pragmatic to the last, dying of old age in 1906. This is a dark ending to the story of the Sutton-Taylor feud. Creed, though stymied by the actions of men like Sutton, was never completely defeated. Even worse, any hopes for a truly free Texas were dashed and the state continued to grapple with racial violence and inequality for almost another century. On a positive note, Laura Sutton successfully gave birth in August 1874. Her daughter, Willie Slaughter Sutton, had three sons of her own. Bill Sutton was also survived by his brother James, who, having taken no part in the feud, lived to have children of his own and therefore continued the family line. The Sutton and Taylor names endure to this day with many descendants continuing to inhabit the same regions of Texas. Though the fighting has come to an end, disagreements still abound as to who was at fault in the conflict. However, as stated, that's one debate that needs to come to an end. Though the actions of lawmen such as Jack Helm were extreme, they were in response to years of violence and theft on the part of the Taylor family. In a modern light, We can see how their racist ideology shielded them from sharper criticism by the white population of the time. But there is nothing sympathetic about the rampant killing and assault of emancipated black settlers and soldiers who already fought hard for their freedom. The crimes of the Taylor family were born of a racial hatred that has reared its ugly head throughout human history. Feelings of inadequacy in the face of an encroaching big government, the need for power, and the memory of a sparsely populated frontier drove the family to become villains in the truest sense. But in becoming killers, the tailors sealed their own fate. Their passion for theft, rape, and murder meant that few died peacefully at an old age. As the Texas saying goes, to be a tailor was to die with your boots on. Thanks again for tuning in to Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion as well as all of other shows on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us, If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time, when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, with sound design by Kerry Murphy. Production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. This episode of Crimes of Passion is written by Greg Castro. I'm Lainey Hobbs.